Tonight, uh, we are in Isaiah chapter 27, Isaiah 27, Israel's coming salvation. And this is the last chapter in this section of Isaiah that uh, many refer to as the little apocalypse, chapter 24 through chapter 27 of Isaiah. And this is a, it's a very encouraging message because it, it points to God's mercies toward his people, his uh, gathering and restoration of his people, and a future hope that his people have to look forward to. In chapter 24, we saw the Lord's destruction of the world and the fact that the judgment on the nations that Isaiah had described in chapter 13 to 23 would actually essentially become a worldwide judgment by God in really in the last days of bringing everything into his rule under his kingdom. And then chapter 25 was a description of God's victory over his enemies. And then last week we saw in chapter 26, a song of deliverance, a song of praise, and then a a prayer, a petition that God would in fact do that, that he would deliver them from their enemies. And now in chapter 27, we see a description of future blessings, future salvation that God is going to bring for his people. And in order to bring about their ultimate salvation, God has to finally bring an end to evil, to all sin. And that is described in chapter 27, verse number one, the destruction of evil. In that day, the Lord will punish with his sword his fierce, great, and powerful sword, Leviathan, the gliding serpent, Leviathan, the coiling serpent. He will slay the monster of the sea. Wow. (laughs) Where does this come from, right? This is interesting language, Leviathan, um, and talking about a monster of the sea. One of the books that I was reading, this comes from Brian Bayer. He has a book called uh, Encountering the Book of Isaiah, And he gives a helpful breakdown of the few places that this Leviathan is referred to in Scripture. So he's referred to twice in the book of Job. Job 3, verse 8, and Job 41, verse 1. In Job 3, verse 8, Job calls for the day of his birth to be cursed, but only those bold enough to, quote, rouse Leviathan should try it. Rousing Leviathan in Job 3 sounds like a formidable task, but no further description of who Leviathan is or what he is, is there in the book of Job chapter 3. Then in Job 41, verse 1, God asks Job if Job is able to capture and domesticate Leviathan. And the rest of Job 41 describes Leviathan as possessing several characteristics. He's so strong that men need spears and harpoons to defeat him. He's unstoppable by one man. He possesses great teeth, scales, and armor. He has fiery eyes and a nose and mouth that exude fire. And he is invincible against human weapons. So that's a pretty powerful description of this Leviathan. Many people think of it in these terms of Job 41 as like a sea dragon like a sea monster of some kind. Uh, Psalm 74, verse 14. 
a part of God's mighty acts includes the defeat of Leviathan. And in that passage, it refers to God crushing Leviathan's heads, plural, in Psalm 74, verse 14. And then in Psalm 104, verse 26, a, there's a list of God's mighty acts, and it includes the creation of Leviathan, whatever this sea monster is. And it says that God created him to play or frolic in the sea. And, and then we have the reference in Isaiah 27.1, where Leviathan is described as a gliding serpent, as a coiling serpent, a monster of the sea. So that's all the biblical description of Leviathan. And many commentators think that whatever this sea monster is, that it became kind of a symbol of, of evil. It became a symbol of chaos, of destruction, of wickedness. And so in Isaiah 27, 1, when it says God will defeat Leviathan, he will finally destroy this sea monster. Many commentaries on Isaiah think of it as God bringing a final defeat to evil, as Leviathan kind of represents that, that evil. And also interesting is that John, in the book of Revelation, uh, refers to a serpent and a dragon in the book of Revelation. And so some think that maybe John is even drawing on this language of Leviathan in the book of Revelation, where it says, where it refers to Satan as the dragon, that ancient serpent in Revelation 20, verse 2. And so Leviathan's destruction then becomes a picture of God one day destroying evil for all time. So that's one way of understanding, probably a good way of understanding Isaiah 27 verse 1, is that God will ultimately defeat Leviathan, which stands for God defeating evil in totality. And for God to bring salvation for his people, he must bring an end to evil. He has to bring in an age of righteousness, which is the end of all wickedness. Then in chapter 27, verses 2 through 6, we see Israel described as God's vineyard and its position as being a part of God's vineyard. And if you remember, this is back many weeks now. Uh, this goes back to chapter 5 of Isaiah. In, in that passage, we saw where Israel is also described as a vineyard. And the way Isaiah 5 reads, it talks about God planting this vineyard, God bringing great care and watering and, and tenderly cultivating the, the vines of this vineyard. But then the vineyard, representing Israel, rejected God and rebelled against him, went into apostasy. And in return, Isaiah 5 talks about God then just leaving the vineyard to to deconstruct, basically, for thorns and thistles and briars to grow up in it, for wild animals to trample it. Probably a, a picture of Israel under the oppression of its enemies, Assyria, Babylon. Well, interestingly, now in chapter 27, it is Israel described as a vineyard again, except this time in a positive picture of, of God blessing and restoring his vineyard of God caring for it once again. And so verse two, in that day, sing about a fruitful vineyard. 
which is exactly the opposite of the way that the vineyard is described in chapter 5, which was bringing forth bad fruit, being unfruitful. I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. Again, contrasted with chapter 5 where God let it go, and he was no longer going to bless it because of its wickedness. Here, the Lord is watching over it and tending to it. I am not angry. If only there were briars and thorns confronting me, I would march against them in battle. I would set them all on fire. So you can see the direct contrast with chapter 5. Is chapter 5, the Lord is angry because of his people's disobedience. And he actually allows thorns and briars to come in. But in chapter 27, he's not angry with his people. And he says, I will oppose thorns and briars and keep them from coming in. Or else let them come to me for refuge. Let them make peace with me. Yes, let them make peace with me. Again, different picture. Instead of God's judgment, it is an invitation to fellowship, an invitation to peace with the Lord. In days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will bud and blossom and fill all the world with fruit. So big contrast between chapter 5 and chapter 27. And so many people think then that this is a, a picture of Israel's future salvation. Because in the time of Isaiah, they were like the vineyard of chapter 5. They were disobedient. They were rebellious. And God was going to allow them to fall into the hands of their enemies for judgment, for chastisement. But this is looking forward to a time in which God will bless it once again. And the, the reference to Israel and Jacob in the same verse is also a clue to us that this is pointing to a future time of restoration, of regathering. Because throughout much of Israel's history, and still at the time of Isaiah, Israel was split into two kingdoms. You had Israel and Judah, and they didn't get along. But in almost all of these future uh, depictions of Israel as being blessed and saved by God, you see Israel and Judah reunited under one, in one kingdom. And so Jacob is going to take root, Israel's going to bud, they're going to flourish and blossom and produce fruit, unlike the unfruitfulness of the vineyard in chapter 5 that God judged. So this is Israel as God's vineyard that he cares for and he watches over. Uh, in verses 7 through 11, we see the reason why God does bring judgment the way that he does. It's, a, it's really an explanation of the way that he has conducted justice among his people and the way that that is different than the way he brings judgment on the rest of the world. So in verse 7, we see, Has the Lord struck her as he struck down those who struck her? Has she been killed as those were killed who killed her? So this is a comparison between the Lord's handling of Israel or Judah and his handling of the other nations who oppressed Israel or Judah. So what Isaiah is saying is, in asking these questions, he is, these are rhetorical questions that are meant to draw, this, draw the, the people to think about the different ways that God has dealt with them. Has God brought judgment on Judah and Israel? Yes, he has. He brought times of defeat. He brought times of exile. 
He brought times when Assyria or Babylon defeated them. But the difference is, is that he did not ultimately forsake them. He did not forget about them. He did not bring them to complete ruin. Whereas the way that he treats these other oppressive and violent nations, such as Egypt or Babylon or Assyria, Moab, the Philistines, God, when he judges them, he seeks to bring them to a complete end. And so there's a distinction. In, in a sense, it's, it's a distinction between chastising or punishing a child and defeating an enemy. That's, the, that's the, the difference. In judging Israel and Judah, he is chastening a child, that, that which belongs to him. But in defeating Egypt and Babylon, they're enemies of God and of his people. So there's a difference in the way that God deals with them. By warfare and exile, you contend with her. With his fierce blast, he drives her out as on a day the east wind blows. So this acknowledges that the Lord has brought difficulties, including warfare and exile, on Judah. Um, Verse 9, by this then will Jacob's guilt be atoned for. And this will be the full fruit of the removal of her sin. When he makes all the altar stones to be like limestone crushed to pieces, no Asherah poles or incense altars will be left standing. In other words, what Isaiah is saying is when God allows his punishing, chastening hand to come on Judah or Israel, whether it be through defeat in war, whether it be through being taken off into exile, God has a purpose in that. And the purpose in allowing these penalties to come is to purify Israel, to purify them, to, to in a sense, atone for their iniquities. But in a, in a more ultimate sense, it is to rid the evil from among them. It is to purify them, to drive out the idolatry. That's what the reference to uh, the limestone is crushed to pieces. That is the, the pieces of the altars of these false gods the Asherah poles, which are either trees or like wood poles that were set up in the worship of these false gods, God's going to tear them down. He brings judgment so as to tear down these false altars and the false worship. He brings judgment to purify his people. The fortified city stands desolate, an abandoned settlement, forsaken like the wilderness. There the calves graze, There they lie down, they strip its branches bare, talking about God's judgment coming. But the reason for it is to bring righteousness to his people. When its twigs are dry, they're broken off, and women come and make fires with them. For this is a people without understanding. So their maker has no compassion on them, and their creator shows them no favor. So God brings judgment, but he does it for a reason. He does it intentionally as the righteous Lord of all the earth, but of the covenant Lord of his people. He brings judgment and penalties for a purpose. And then verses 12 and 13, the image of uh, Isaiah, the vision of Isaiah finishes with a, a returned or restored remnant of people. In that day, The Lord will thresh from the flowing Euphrates to the wadi of Egypt. And you, Israel, will be gathered up one by one. 
the idea here is of a great regathering. And the idea of threshing in, in the ancient world, when they would thresh wheat or grain, the idea was to separate it, uh, to separate the grain from the chaff. And in this, in this instance, it is um, even a more specific kind of threshing. It is uh, separating the whole from the actual seed grain itself. And so it, it depicts a great care in the selecting out of that which is truly fruitful and helpful in the harvest. And you can see the care that is involved by God gathering it up one by one. Can you imagine a harvester gathering seeds of grain one by one? I mean, that's incredibly impractical, right? I mean, nobody does that. Now it's all done by machines. You know, we want to do this wholesale as, as efficiently as possible. But in doing this one by one, it depicts God's care for his people in that. And, and notice the geographical boundaries. All the way to the river Euphrates, where's that? Babylon, all the way to the Wadi of Egypt. So you've got two of Israel's great enemies, Babylon and Egypt, and really everything in between, including the Moabites and the Philistines and all of these people who have tormented the Israelite people. And many of them probably had been scattered through these times of exile. They've been scattered to these different places. And God, this picture is of a regathering of God going through all of this territory and gathering his seeds of his people and bringing them back home. And in that day, a great trumpet will sound. Those who were perishing in Assyria and those who were exiled in Egypt, they will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain in Jerusalem. So later on, after Isaiah... Uh, in later prophets, such as Zechariah, and then on into the New Testament, even in the prophecies of Jesus, in Paul and Thessalonians, in Revelation, we see this image of a trumpet blast as signaling the end of everything, don't we? As really the, the, the day of the Lord, the final day of the Lord, the coming of Jesus, and the ultimate reckoning. And uh, Paul even says in Corinthians, at the last trumpet, you know, the dead in Christ will be raised and will become incorruptible. But when this last trumpet blows, it is essentially a summoning trumpet. It is a trumpet that gathers all of God's people. This is Isaiah's way of describing it. Paul's way of describing it in, Thess in Thessalonians is of a resurrection from the dead, of all of God's people rising, and then those who are still alive coming up to meet the Lord in the air but many different ways that the biblical writers describe this. But one common thread is a gathering of God's people to worship the Lord. And in Revelation, you see it in different ways. You see it in Revelation 5, where all the people of all the places around the world, every tribe and language, they're there around the throne worshiping God. In at the end of Revelation, you see a new Jerusalem coming down new heavens and a new earth, and that becomes the centerpiece of the worship of God throughout the whole earth, of a new earth, a new heavens. And so I think this is what Isaiah is pointing to. Isaiah is really one of the first prophets that gives us this vision of a future glorious day at the end of time. All the later prophets, 
Jesus, Paul, the apostles, John, they all pick up on this same image when they portray the last times. And it is a time of regathering of all of God's people from all over the world being brought to worship God. And it will be a time of peace, a time of salvation, a time of joy, and a time that we cannot even begin to imagine what it will be like. As Paul says in Romans 8, I consider that the present sufferings right now are nothing to be compared to the glory that shall be hereafter. And this is what Isaiah is pointing to. It's a time of... Now, think about when he's saying this now. When Isaiah is saying this, he's saying it in the midst of a people that are defeated. Uh, Israel and, and Judah are separated. They're at odds with one another. Assyria is a, a, an impending threat on both Israel and Judah. It, it doesn't look hopeful in the midst of Isaiah's setting in his time. That's why he's portraying this time of great hope, of, of showing what the Lord is going to do for his people in the end, to give them hope and faith in the present. Um, let's just, just, as we close, I just want us to think some, maybe some thoughts, some concluding ideas from all four of these chapters, chapter 24 through 27. And the four main ideas that come out of this passage, first of all, God is in control. We see that, that God, you know, we saw this theme in Isaiah 13 to 23, where we see God's control over individual nations, whether it be Babylon or Egypt, Assyria. But then in chapter 24 through 27, the scope extends out to a, a global universal level. And so we see that God's in control of the whole world, the whole universe. And, and he is bringing everything uh, to it, his purposes. Uh, we see that God's sovereignty, the way that he rules over the world, that it includes both salvation and judgment. And we've seen this in many passages in Isaiah that, that it's like two sides of one coin. That if you are going to be blessed and shown mercy by God, that happens almost uh, co extensively or at the same time with God's, self, God's judgment on his enemies. So you have salvation and judgment oftentimes happening in the same event. In order to bless and show mercy on his people, he judges their enemies. So we see God doing this, extending his sovereign rule in both judgment and restoration. And then we see also God calling us to peace that one of the great themes of these chapters, especially looking forward to the great time of joy and peace at the end, is really a resolution to all the problems that this world has. It's, it's the Hebrew concept of shalom, of wholeness, of peace, of completeness, of all things being as they were meant to be. And that means being at peace with God, but also being at peace with his creation. No more curse, as we see in Genesis 3. Being at peace with one another. So it's, it's a wholeness, a, a time of peace that these chapters look forward to. And, and great days are coming. You know, we see uh, just a great ray of hope that, that looks out past the darkness. So in Isaiah's time, it was a time of darkness and despair but he is wanting them to look up, to get their vision up and see 
beyond that to a time of great restoration and hope. And, and I think many of these messages, especially these big themes, are directly applicable to us as Christians right now. That God is in control, right? I mean, he was in control in Isaiah's time. He's in control right now. Everything that happens is within God's sovereign plan for the ages. And we see that God deals with people both now in time as well as at the end of time, God will deal with people rightly in both judgment and salvation. He will do that which is right and holy. We see that in the New Testament even, that it points us to a time of peace, of wholeness, of joy, that everything is moving forward to you. And so we have a lot to look forward to as God's people. And I think one of the reasons why the biblical writers, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, shows us these future images is to give us hope and to give us and to undergird our faith in the present, to give us strength and encouragement in, the, in, in today because we see what's coming down the road. That's, that's what gives us joy and strength and faith helps us to persevere. And so I'm thankful for Isaiah. I'm thankful for his vision. I'm thankful for the God, the way that God used him to portray uh, these blessings that are to come for his people. And much of what Isaiah describes is still to come. It's still to come from our perspective and we have it to look forward to you.